The Think Neuro podcast from Pacific Neuroscience Institute takes you into the clinic, operating room, and laboratory with doctors and surgeons who are tackling the most challenging brain diseases and disorders. Hi, my name is Anthony Effinger, and I'm your host. Imagine a twitch that won't go away. Worse yet, imagine that twitch is in your face. That's what sufferers of hemifacial spasm experience day in and day out. The spasms originate deep in the brain where it connects with the spinal cord. In this crowded channel, the nerves that control facial muscles ride close by blood vessels. As those vessels age, they can sag and come into contact with one of the facial nerves. The pulsing of blood compresses the nerve 70 times a minute, 24 hours a day, eventually wearing down the insulation on the nerve. This causes it to misfire and creates uncontrollable contractions in the face. Dr. Neil Martin, a neurosurgeon, treats hemifacial spasm by creating a nickel-sized opening in the back of the skull and separating the nerve from the intruding vessel. The procedure takes about 90 minutes and many patients get immediate relief. Listen to this episode to learn how the procedure works and how Dr. Martin uses minimally invasive techniques at PNI to treat other related conditions. Hello, this is Anthony Effinger. I'm your host at the Think Neuro podcast from Pacific Neuroscience Institute. And today we are talking with Dr. Neil Martin. He is a neurosurgeon and he's the Director of Innovation and Quality at PNI. Dr. Martin, thanks for joining us. Hi, Anthony. Great to be here with you. How, when did you know you were going to be a neurosurgeon in your life? Uh, it was in my third year of medical school, frankly. I uh, did a rotation on neurosurgery and uh, just was completely uh, enamored of the complexity of the field uh, and the opportunity to uh, um, personally do complex operations and result in, you know, tremendous recovery for patients from devastating diseases. So I was, I was hooked as soon as I got a real exposure to it. And where was that? I was, a, I was a medical student at the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, and after that, I went on to a neurosurgical residency at uh, the University of California in San Francisco with a famous neurosurgeon, Charlie Wilson, and then after that, spent a year in Phoenix at the Barrow Neurological Institute and, and uh, then worked at UCLA for over three decades. What was Dr. Wilson, uh, what was his claim to fame? Dr. Wilson was um, one of the hardest working people you would ever come to meet. Uh, he could be uh, both um, charming and frightening. Uh, he was only about five foot eight feet tall, weighed about 120 pounds, but he was a tiger and uh, amazing neurosurgeon, one of the leading neurosurgeons in the world, uh, and also a marathon runner. And so I had the privilege of, uh, of training for marathons and ultra marathons with him in the later years of my residency, a unique experience. How long did you work with him? Six years. I was in San Francisco for six years. Okay. And when did you, when did you do your first procedure? Well, as a, as a resident, when I was at the San Francisco General Hospital, I actually did procedures along with one of the faculty members. 
uh, and later in my residency as well with Dr. Wilson. Uh, but solo, my first procedure was in uh, October of 1985. It sounds like you remember it well. I remember it very well. It was a, it was a ruptured aneurysm in a gentleman who'd had a serious hemorrhage from the aneurysm. Uh, relatively high risk case, not the easiest first case ever, but fortunately everything went well. Uh, he made it through and returned home uh, doing quite well afterwards. Now tell us an aneurysm, remind us again, what happens there? Yeah, an aneurysm is a, is a weakened spot in a brain artery. Of course, the arteries are the high pressure blood vessels that take blood from the heart to the brain. And the brain arteries are unique in that they have an uh, unusually thin wall. They're not reinforced by multiple layers of tissue like they are in the rest of the body. So if you develop a weakened spot, it can uh, rupture and cause bleeding over the surface of the brain, a subarachnoid hemorrhage that's called. And uh, that's, one of the, that's one of the specialties that I had uh, in uh, neurosurgery was, was treating blood vessel abnormalities. So that, that case was the first of uh, over a thousand craniotomies, brain surgeries for aneurysms. Uh, and uh, it's a field that's evolved dramatically. Many of those aneurysms are treated now with endovascular techniques, catheter techniques like a heart angioplasty where the catheter goes right up inside the brain artery, inside the head and deposits material, usually a platinum coil inside the aneurysm and blocks it off from the inside. So open surgery is only required for the most complicated aneurysms today. Uh, why platinum? Well, platinum is, uh, is a uh, relatively non-reactive metal. So it doesn't rust or degrade over time. It's, uh, its durability is tremendous. And it can be woven into a very soft, floppy, coil-like uh, material that assumes the shape of an aneurysm and allows you to pack it off from the inside uh, without, without putting too much pressure on the aneurysm. Oh, that's fascinating. So tell us about your practice now at, at PNI. What do you, what do you see every, every week? So at, at PNI, I'm still seeing patients with blood vessel abnormalities, brain aneurysms, arteriovenous malformations, which is a cluster of abnormal blood vessels in the brain that can cause bleeding or seizures. Uh, and I'm also seeing patients uh, with cranial nerve disorders, uh, particularly the ones that are related to compression, micro compression of the cranial nerve inside the head. This is a, this is a phenomenon that can cause a variety of clinical problems. So if the nerve that provides sensation to the face is compressed, then this can cause trigeminal neuralgia, which is uh, an episodic, sharp, knife-like pain uh, to one side of the face. Uh, it's been called the suicide disease because in days before we had good treatments for it, it was so severe that patients uh, would try anything to escape the pain. So trigeminal neuralgia is one form. Uh, hemifacial spasm, we'll talk about that a little bit today. Hemifacial spasm is another. If the nerve involved is the facial nerve, which is the nerve that provides movement to the face, not sensation like the trigeminal nerve, then if that becomes involved, you also have episodes of hyperactivity of the nerve. But in this case, it's movement, it's twitching, it's spasming of the facial muscles, quite disfiguring. Uh, it's not really painful, uh, but it is socially handicapping and it's a huge cosmetic problem for people. And, and because it can often cause spasming and, and, and tonic closure of the eye, it really can, can impair somebody's functioning to a certain degree. 
tonic closing of the eye? So, so ordinarily this causes episodes of spasm, twitching of the face and the eyelid. If it becomes extremely severe, then it can cause the equivalent of a cramp, tightening of the muscles that doesn't relent for minutes or longer. And uh, if your eye gets squeezed shut and you're driving, that can be a, that can be a distraction and a, and a hazard. If you do a, if you do a dangerous job, it's, you know, it's really a major impediment. Uh, but for most people, interacting socially is so critically important. And this is hugely distraction, distracting. It looks, it looks very abnormal. Uh, and um, and it, it really impairs the, a person's social life their business interactions, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's tremendously bothersome. So what is, is, is it, does one side of the face look sort of contorted and, and um, cramped? Yeah. So part of the time, a person can look entirely normal. But when the spasming occurs, and it's a little bit unpredictable, it often comes on when a person's fatigued or mm. stressed, uh, then this occurs. And it's, it's – uh, very disfiguring contraction of one side of the face with vigorous closure of the eye and wrinkling of the nose and contraction of the cheek and the mouth area. You know, it looks like someone is making faces at you with one side of their face. Uh, and, and people, most people don't have any understanding of, of this syndrome. And when they see it, uh, it's disturbing. It's off-putting uh, because they don't understand. There's a there's a, a real biological disorder that's causing this. The person isn't um, the person isn't uh, acting in a bizarre way for any non-biological reason. For some psychological disturbance, it's a biological uh, phenomenon that they have no control over. What? So what's the cause here? Where where does this nerve run? Well, the nerve runs, uh, yeah. you know, the, it, it, it originates in the brainstem. Now, the brainstem is an extension of the spinal cord as it enters the brain uh, down at the base of your skull. And from the side of the brainstem, numerous nerves arise, like the trigeminal nerve for facial sensation, like the um, vestibulocochlear nerve, which provides hearing and balance, like the facial nerve, which provides movement of the face uh, and nerves that go uh, towards the throat and the swallowing mechanisms. Uh, So these nerves um, are traveling uh, through the fluid space before they exit uh, specific openings in the skull to to go on to their destination in the face or the throat. If there's a very vulnerable area a few millimeters, less than a quarter of an inch beyond where they come out of the brain, where the, the um, components of the nerve change. A nerve is a, is a bundle of biological wires that provide control to the body or provide perception and sensation. And each one of those wires, the, the nerve filaments from neurons, is insulated from its from its nearby neighbors by um, a cellular layer that's called the Schwann cells, and these cells uh, allow for uh, very organized nerve impulse conduction through the nerve, just like electric current, 
if you will, that uh, is the mechanism for uh, nerve action and nerve communication. So in the case of hemifacial spasm and trigeminal neuralgia, the nerve loses its insulation. And in these cases, we found that it's usually caused by chronic compression from a blood vessel that just happens to be happens to be too close to the nerve. So with every heartbeat, the nerve, the, the blood vessel is compressing the nerve over and over again, 70 times a minute, 24 hours a day. And over time, that can wear away the insulation in the nerve, cause short circuiting. And so one gets, instead of the smooth action of the nerve to provide normal synchronous contraction of the muscles in the face, for instance, when you smile or when you're talking or frowning, you get a flashes of nerve activity that result in this kind of spasming of the muscles in the face, hemifacial spasm, hemi for one side of the face. So where is this critical um, uh, spot on, on the nerve? In the back of your, where, if you had to point to it, where would, where would you point? It's, it's straight in from right here. It's from halfway, your, halfway between my fingers, right at the base of the skull, right in the middle. You've and got your fingers up kind of behind your ears. Yeah, it's, it's lower down. It's not up in the cerebrum, the main cognitive and memory center for the brain. It's down at the brain stem where the brain connects to the spinal cord lower at the base of your neck. Okay. And uh, so the spot that's vulnerable, you, you can recognize it with experience. It's a couple of millimeters distant from the area where the nerve comes out of the brain tissue. <coughs> and there can be um, two or three different nerves that uh, two or three different arteries that cause this kind of compression. Uh, in some cases, you can actually see the area of compression in the abnormal blood vessel on a high resolution brain MRI scan. But in other cases, uh, it's so subtle and the artery is so small, you can't see it. But this syndrome is so characteristic hmm. that the symptoms alone give you about a 98% assurance that this is a problem. It starts with twitching right around the eye, which everybody, you and I have had from time to time when we have too much caffeine, when we get too tired. Uh, that little twitching around your eyelid is, is a, a normal muscle fasciculation. That's not hemifacial spasm, but hemifacial spasm begins in a very similar way, but rapidly it uh, extends to involve not only the lower eyelid, but the upper eyelid, then the muscles around the eye, then the cheek, the jaw, even the muscles of the neck can be involved over time. So, um, you know, everybody out there who occasionally has a little twitching around your eye, you don't need to panic. Uh, <laughs> one in a thousand times that evolves into into hemifacial spasm. So it's a, it's a, it's a normal muscle irritation. Uh, is, this just, is this just a bad luck of anatomy that some people have are afflicted with this? It's yeah, it's an accident of nature, Anthony. Uh, the blood vet, the, all of these nerves are surrounded by a network of blood vessels that supply the critical nutrition, oxygen and glucose, sugar to the brain to keep it running. And uh, the brain requires a tremendous amount of energy to function. 
uh, 20% of the flow from your heart goes to your brain. Hmm. And so uh, the blood vessels are, uh, form a rich network on the surface of the brain. And in the vast majority of people, they don't hit that one little vulnerable area of the trigeminal or the facial nerve. But when they do, they can cause this kind of a syndrome. Over time, blood vessels have a tendency to elongate a bit with age. And if they elongate, they start to develop a kink or a curvature. And that curvature then can impact the nerve and, and gradually over time, damage the nerve and cause this kind of dysfunction. And now a message from our sponsor. The Think Neuro podcast is brought to you by Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation, a nonprofit 501c3 organization. If you're inspired by what you hear and wish to support our mission of education through innovation, please visit pacificneuro.org foundation. So tell us what you do in your procedure. Well, you know, it's not necessary to do brain surgery for everybody who has hemifacial spasm. And mild cases often can be controlled quite well with temporary paralysis of the facial muscles, as can be done with Botox injections. So just like Botox will erase the wrinkles in your forehead, Botox can cause enough weakness in the muscles of your face that this kind of spasming will stop. Sometimes uh, there's a bit of an overshoot, and so you get uh, facial weakness. That side of the face will actually droop for a while until the, the Botox starts to wear off in a month or so. And then over the course of two or three or four months, generally the effect wears off and the spasm comes back. So for some people with mild spasm, uh, that's, a, that's a very reasonable symptomatic treatment. It doesn't get to the heart of the matter. It doesn't get to the underlying cause. It doesn't cure the problem. It's, uh, it's a Band-Aid. Um, unfortunately, there's no oral medication you can take that really is very effective for hemifacial spasm. Many have been tried. Almost nothing really works, and patients are generally uh, di more dissatisfied with the side effects of the medication uh, and, and, and unimpressed with the improvement they get. But Botox is a reasonable alternative. However, in some people, the effect starts wearing off over years, and, and for control, you have to have this injection every three or four, four months indefinitely. So yeah, yeah. It's, not, uh, it's not a trivial commitment. Okay, so then... The surgery what? you asked about. Yeah. The surgery involves uh, making a small opening just behind the ear. Uh, it's usually the size of a nickel, and the incision is just over an inch. And through that opening, if you make it in, in precisely the right spot over the area of the facial nerve, then using a surgical microscope and the endoscope, you can see the facial nerve clearly. And it's possible to identify the blood vessel causing the compression with experience it's quite obvious and then the blood vessel <clears throat> is is bonded to the air the surface of the brain with small spider web like fibrils the arachnoid and those those have to be cut they don't have a function beyond structural and if those are cut then you can displace the artery away from the nerve take the pressure off and in order to maintain that decompression we generally put a small Teflon felt pad in there. We're talking about something that, uh, you know, is very small, the size of uh, an orange seed, perhaps. 
Yeah, I was going to ask the geometries here are there. That's what we're talking about. Is that sort of sizes? That's right. It's it's quite small. Uh, and so we carefully uh, with an instrument in one hand, elevate the blood, the blood vessel away from the nerve and interpose uh, a cushioning fiber, uh, Teflon felt uh, pad. And then often with a little bit of biological glue, we fix it in place. Uh, and that solves the problem. Biological glue? It's, it's glue that's made from the same proteins that form a blood clot. Interesting. And it's commercially available, it's prepared, and it can be used uh, uh, to adhere the, 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 the felt pad in place until a tiny amount of fibrous tissue will fix it permanently in place. So what's in your hands when you're doing this procedure? What are the instruments? So um, in order to make in the opening, we use a, a, a micro drill and drill away a little bit of bone, as I say, on opening the size of a nickel. And once we open the leathery covering of the brain, the dura, then we see the, the, the posterior part of the brain, the cerebellum. And with a little gentle retraction and draining of the cerebrospinal fluid, then we can see the nerve. Uh, the, the entire operation requires the use of a surgical microscope that's magnifying things 10 times, 20 times so that we can see every tiny detail. And then in one hand, uh, one, one uses a probe or a, um, a, a small thin suction catheter made of metal to elevate the blood vessel. The little arachnoid um, adhesions that hold blood vessels in place are cut with micro scissors. And then, uh, and then using a, uh, you know, a micro forceps, we put the Teflon felt pad in place. Now, Anthony, in some cases, um, the nerve is almost around the corner of the brain stem and can be a little hard to, dip, to, to identify without uh, making a very large opening. And in those cases, we often use the endoscope, just as used to scope your knee. And the endoscope, which is about uh, anywhere from uh, two to four millimeters in diameter, can be introduced right next to the nerve. We can see around corners and we can make sure that we've identified all the areas of compression. Fascinating. How long is this procedure take usually? Usually it takes an hour and a half. That's it? Yeah. In and out? <laughs> In and out. Uh, the anatomy, <clears throat> if you're a fan of neuroanatomy, the anatomy is beautiful. You can actually see every cranial nerve very clearly. Uh, you can see the blood vessels well. So it's, it's that perfect surgical circumstance where there's a visible structural abnormality that you can correct and reverse the whole clinical syndrome. In other words, eliminate all the symptoms. And that must be gratifying. As extremely, it's extremely gratifying during surgery. Uh, you, can also, you can almost hear the nerve breathe a sigh of relief as you decompress it. And uh, and, and, and the real reward comes when you talk to the patients afterwards and their face is no longer twitching. Is it immediate? Well, that's a good question. You know, for some, there's, there's several patterns that occur. In some patients, uh, they wake up after surgery and there's never another twitching again. Uh, some people will wake up and the twitching is unchanged, but the nerve is now in the healing phase. And in weeks or months, sometimes the twitching fades away. 
Sometimes it's gone immediately from the immediate effect of the surgery. Then it com- the twitching comes back for a little bit. That's frightening for a patient. They think it didn't work. But with a little reassurance, they get rid of it. And more than 90, 95%, in my experience, uh, more than 95% of patients are uh, completely relieved of the twitching uh, after this kind of surgery. So it's, it's life-changing for people like this. And these it are must the be. happiest, most grateful be. patients you can imagine. Yeah, I mean, are there, is there anything else in uh, you know your area of work that has this sort of um, success and immediate, you know, an obvious, uh, you know, improvements? Well, you know, frankly, it's the other microvascular compression syndrome, trigeminal neuralgia, which also has the same kind of tremendous, uh, tremendous outcome for patients. In this case, this excruciating knife-like, electric shock-like pain uh, is gone. And, you know, they, they live their lives sort of tensed up, waiting for the pain to come at any unexpected moment. And when oh. that's gone, they don't even believe it until days or weeks go by and they have no, no more episodes of pain. And so that, you know, those patients are equal or, e- or even more grateful than the hemifacial spasm patients. But Is that... Uh, is that the same idea here that you're going in and getting a blood, uh, an artery off of the, the trigeminal nerve? Right. It's just, but in this case, it's, it's a sensory nerve, not a motor nerve. It's, it's, uh, it's about three quarters of an inch away. All <laughs> so that it's the same moment. neighborhood. Same neighborhood, same phenomenon. The trigeminal nerve, uh, relatively speaking, is a pretty, is a pretty substantial hefty nerve, probably five times the diameter of the facial nerve. Uh, Which is how big then? So how big does that make it? About a millimeter in diameter. So that's a big, that's a big nerve. <laughs> Relatively speaking, that's a big nerve. Many of them are smaller than that. A millimeter. Yeah. And you can, you know, these things when you see them, obviously. Yeah. With some experience. Um, yeah. yeah. It's a, uh, it, it's a bit of a thicket of critical structures when you first go in there. Uh, but they all have, well-established positions and relationships one to another. And so you can, you can um, work it out as you do it the first few times, if you've studied the anatomy and after you've done it several hundred times, like I have, uh, you recognize the problem immediately. What color is the trigeminal nerve? It's an ivory color. Interesting. Okay. So it's ivory on a background of what, like what else is around it? Uh, the, the, uh, sort of, uh, tan or yellowish surface of the brainstem. The is that also include, is that what color the cerebellum is too? Yeah. The cerebellum, the cerebellum has a different structure, but more or less the same color of, of all of the brain tissue. Uh, you know, the brain is encompassed by what's called the pia. Well, the pia is the skin of the brain. And so it has this, it has this color. Is the pia different from the dura? Yeah, there are several layers between the brain tissue itself and the inner surface of the skull. The pia is the skin of the brain. Then there is a fluid filled space filled with cerebrospinal fluid. That's where we're working for these nerves. They, they go through this fluid filled space called the subarachnoid space. Now it's, it's not much space. It's only a couple millimeters wide. <laughs> Uh, and then there's the arachnoid. The arachnoid is the saran wrap like layer 
that encloses the cerebrospinal fluid and keeps it uh, over the surface of the brain. In fact, the brain is floating essentially in the cerebrospinal fluid. And then outside of that is the dura, which is like leather. It's like a leathery, a thin layer of leathery, strong tissue that protects the brain. Is it a big deal to breach that? You know, um, patients take a few days to recover after you've gone in and, and, and done this sort of operation. On the, on the way out, we repair each layer as much as possible. Uh, and, and the healing process will seal things up uh, once we've finished. The dura gets sutured together um, just like a leather garment. And uh, so it's closed up and restored in its normal uh, location. Uh, and then the opening in the bone uh, can be repaired with uh, biological bone cement, or it can be filled with a tiny bit of fat taken from uh, the lower part of the abdomen in some people. Uh, and then we often cover the hole up with uh, a very thin titanium, star-shaped titanium plate that, uh, that seals it. The opening is small enough one's not left vulnerable. It's not a weak spot in the skull that exposes you to trauma. And, and, and as I said, it's really, it's the size of a nickel, maybe a, a hair bigger than that. So you're not putting back the piece, you're putting back other material that's going to seal it's such, that. Yeah, it's such a small opening. It's hard to cut out a piece of that size. And the opening has to be quite close to some of the large uh, venous structures that travel through the dura so you want to be very careful with microsurgical drilling that you don't get any tears in that, which can cause some bleeding. So very often uh, it's difficult to cut out a plug of tissue and then re replace it. Not impossible, and it can be done in some cases, but most of the time we drill it away very carefully and then replace it either with, uh, with a biological bone cement that's made out of the same kind of constituents that your natural bone is. Uh, it goes in like putty and then hardens very quickly or, or a little bit of fatty tissue is plenty to seal it up as well. Well, and then how long are people in um, the hospital for this operation? Most, most people are ready to go home on the day after surgery or the second post-operative day. Uh, in, in, um, it's, it's, not a, it's not a procedure that's associated with a lot of pain at the incision site. We generally give some local anesthetics that's long lasting at the end of the operation. So they, they, the whole area is numb for eight, eight plus hours. And uh, with, uh, with Tylenol and, and, and an Advil equivalent, that's usually all that people require in order, that's incredible. <laughs> in order to do this. That's incredible. So that you get brain surgery and you're out maybe the next day, a day after you take some Tylenol and that's, uh, that's it. And that is it. Um, and Excellent. Most people, you know, most people take a week or two before they're back at work. <laughs> sometimes That's, that seems that seems incredibly short to me too. Uh, it's not. It's not a very invasive procedure, and uh, it's one that's remarkably well tolerated. Uh, it's it. You know, it's the. You know, there are not that many things in healthcare that are absolutely curative. Many things are managed or, or, or medicated. Uh, this, is a, this is a flat out cure. And um, most people never require any treatment for the condition again in their life.
That is amazing. That's amazing. Uh, well, Dr. Martin, this has been fascinating. Um, thank you so much for coming on. And I know we've, we're doing another episode with you uh, that's going to be interesting as well. Um, we're going to talk about that next time. But this has been a delight. And thank you very much for joining us. Well, I say thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining us today on the Think Neuro podcast. Join us every month for a new episode and learn how some of the best minds in medicine are caring for the most complex structures in the human body. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to it and please share it with a friend and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us.